This is the EPFR Exchange Podcast. All opinions expressed by Cam, Todd, and our podcast guests are solely of their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of EPFR or Informa, its parent company. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EPFR Exchange podcast. My name is Kirsten Longbottom, and we are joined by EPFR's resident economist, Cameron Brandt. We'll walk you through what our teams were monitoring in the data last week and what we look forward in the upcoming weeks as well. Cam, um, settling back in, how was your week this week? Uh, well, it was uh, a definite contrast to the week in Iceland. Um where the Icelandic weather gave us a pounding, but we didn't lose anyone down a volcano. Uh, and I was able to <laughs> lure a large sea trout out of one of their rivers. So it was a, it was a success all round. Yeah, squeezing in fishing always. <laughs> Good. As ever. <laughs> As ever. Um, so in the Global Navigator this week, you highlighted a few headwinds in the market that are currently continuing. Um, They've been going on for a while. So one that was most remarkable is that we hit the 150-day mark um, with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And how do you think sanctions are still playing a role in the way that investors are moving their money, or are they? What's probably more interesting about the headwinds is that most of the investors, certainly the ones that we track through mutual funds, uh, are really sort of discounting the short-term problems uh, and translating them into a better climate for asset prices, in a way, uh, down the line. Uh, you know, the, the broad thinking being that uh, the, the headwinds that you've mentioned and others uh, add up to slowed or even stalled economic growth, which in turn is going to force the hand of central banks currently in tightening mode. Um, Inflation will start to come back down and the needs of growth and job markets will begin to move higher up the list of priorities for those major central banks like the Federal Reserve. Uh, The Ukraine continues the Russia's attack on the Ukraine and the fact it keeps grinding along, there's no doubt it's having a big impact in a number of areas. But I, you know, what we've seen here at EPFR is that uh, investors have kind of assigned uh, the vast majority of the uh, bad outcomes to Europe. Um, so, while Europe, uh, the Europe equity funds that we track are now, well, their outflow streak is is up to uh, 27 weeks and $83 billion. Um, we've, we've seen, you know, less, markedly less impact outside of that. Um, it's not that other fund groups aren't having their issues and, and flows are certainly... <laughs> been bumpy in most cases over the past several months. But, you know, U.S. equity funds, U.S. bond funds, uh, more often than not in recent weeks, been seeing inflows. Same for most of the major emerging Asian fund groups. Uh, Interestingly, Japan has begun to peel away a bit from that happy state of affairs. 
um, mixed sentiment towards Latin America. But you know, this past week we saw over 200 million go into Brazil equity funds. Um, investors really seem to be giving Africa uh, a, a wide berth uh, during you know this particular period. Uh, down period, which was triggered by the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, historically, when um, developed markets and, and the bigger emerging markets are running rough, we have tended to see a bit more interest in Africa and, and the frontier markets as, as an uncorrelated asset class. Uh, but we really haven't been seeing that this time around. So this week, you mentioned how flows into emerging market equity funds were helped by solid flows into Latin America, which was from Brazil equity. Um, What's going on in Brazil's economy? Brazil's economy basically operates in a perpetual state of headwinds, to put it otherwise. Uh, Taxes are high, Structural inefficiencies mean that you know you, the kind of lowest you can take seem to be able to take interest rates without triggering inflation is about five percent. Uh, there's great inequality. Uh, the economy is still very dependent on uh, commodity demand and prices. Um, but you know, people learn to adapt, and, and Brazilians are particularly good at adapting. So uh, their economy, even though uh, interest rates, the, you know, the key selling rate at the moment is uh, up over 13%, um, <clears throat> the economy is doing people better than people expected and is likely to get a boost uh, going into the uh, election they're going to hold in October. October. Um, it's a feature of Brazilian elections that there's a largesse from the incumbent and promises of largesse from the main challenger. Um, unlike many recent Latin American uh, elections in, in key markets, this one, uh, for investors in a way, on the surface of it, offers a less painful choice. You've got the uh, the erratic, uh, but certainly business-friendly Bolsonaro in office uh, being challenged by uh, a man, uh, Lulu da Silva, who has a track record um, of responsible stewardship of the Brazilian economy, even though his politics overall are markedly to the left of Bolsonaro's. Um, um, you know, Mexico continues to uh, have its pretty bad policy environment uh significantly offset by the assumption that as the the uh, reconfiguration of supply chains plays out over the next few years, that uh, uh, it's going to be a popular alternative to China uh, in terms of accessing the major North American markets. Well, speaking of China, um, that country 
from what I've read, um, is experiencing slower growth and is still has a pretty aggressive stance towards Taiwan, which is worrying to investors. Do you think there could be even more fear or maybe less given that the U.S. and Taiwan agreed to start talks on trade? And how does Japan play a role in that dynamic? Well, you're right to sort of phrase it like that because it is all interrelated. Um, the keystone, honestly, is the Chinese uh, economy. It's not doing as well as it has been uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I mean, you know, as you get to certain size, 7% growth year on, year out gets much harder to achieve. And uh, the recent crackdown on the private sector is, I don't think, going to be a net plus for overall productivity. Um, and, you know, it's not terribly surprising to me that when economics isn't going as well, and that's been sort of a, a key plank of the ruling Communist Party's uh, legitimacy, um, that they're being more aggressive in the foreign policy sphere. Um, I still think it's unlikely they'll actually move directly against Taiwan. Um, you know, events in the Ukraine have certainly highlighted uh, the difficulty of and risks surrounding offensive operations, and those are multiplied when you conduct an amphibious operation. Um, but uh, it, it poses security and economic issues for economies throughout the region. Uh, I think we may be seeing a bit of the, that in the downturn uh, of flows to Japan equity funds, um, which, you know, given the weekend's uh, impact on the, you know, positive impact on the pricing power, you, uh, you, the, the exporters, uh, revenue streams, they're um, building and shipping products uh, using cheap yen and getting paid in harder currencies when they repatriate, uh, plus an, a, a marked uptick uh, for Japan in, in domestic consumption. Uh, these should be fairly good times for funds dedicated to Japan. Uh, but the fact that uh, the market, China, which absorbs a fifth of Japan's exports these days, is is slowing and uh, getting more aggressive, uh, and that tensions are rising uh, between China and Taiwan, uh, and Taiwan absorbs another 7-8% of Japanese exports, um, you know, I, th I think there is uh, something of a reassessment going on about the longer term prospects for Japan's businesses at the moment, especially the export-oriented ones. So in a recent forward-looking piece, and maybe we'll end it on this one, but um, you detailed that infrastructure, Switzerland, and government were the key themes for the second half of 2022. Why did you pick those three? Where does, where does that come from? Key themes, I think, might be a little strong. I, I did identify those as likely uh, sweet spots uh, in the investment landscape uh, during the second half of the year. And certainly infrastructure continues <laughs> to deliver on that. Um, 
not that I deserve any great credit for highlighting that because between, um, you know, the demand, uh, uh, the uh, stimulus packages that are once again popping up um, and the uh, sudden and urgent demands to improve energy, especially green energy infrastructure and military infrastructure in Europe, um, quality infrastructure companies and businesses are going to be turning away business, I think, uh, in the coming months and years. Um, Switzerland I highlighted because, um, A, it's, it's a traditional haven when things in Europe are not going very well, uh, and it is reasonably well insulated from some of the worst uh, things that could happen if energy supplies get really pinched. Uh, Insulated but not immune, but it has a very diverse uh, supplier base. Uh, It does have reasonable hydroelectric uh, capacity. Um, Transportation, internal transportation is over shorter distances than, say, is the case if you're running a business in France or, God help you, Germany with the Rhine down to its bones. So that, you know, that was the logic for those two. Good. And government, I think that one we, we kind of covered throughout um, this podcast for sure. So great. Well, thank you um, for your insight as always. Great. Uh, you enjoy your weekend. Uh, you ha- you have company visiting, I believe. Yep. Yep. Going to a um, concert tonight, so we'll be oh, very good. fun. <laughs> so you're not, you're not taking not, not taking them bareback bull riding and, um, and not uh, this one. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the EPFR Exchange podcast. For more information or to suggest a topic for a future podcast, please visit epfr.com slash podcast.